Welcome to Untangling Christianity. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. I'm John Polstra. I'm Greg Monteith. So today we're looking at an article from the Biola Magazine, Fall 2016. The article's titled, Young People Are Indeed Leaving the Church. And this is by Craig Hazen and Larry Barnett. So the gist of the article, we'll link to it in the notes, is that uh, young people are leaving the church and... The leading reason that young people are leading the church is because they have doubts, and in cases where their doubts are sufficiently addressed, surprise, they have better lasting relationships with God, and those that don't, don't. (laughs) (laughs) How am I doing so far? (laughs) You're scoring high on my my great great sheet. I don't want to be too broken record on some of this stuff, but... uh, yeah, I don't know. The the what's eating what what really gets you with this? What really gets Okay, here's what really gets. Great question. Let me just cut to the chase. I don't know if we're going to talk about the the wider topic of young people leaving the church. We could probably spend a whole year on episodes on that. The part that really got me, I'll just read it word for word. It's the last paragraph. And so the driving force of this is that apologetics is the answer. Mm. So, if you can give you know, really sound explanations to these intellectual doubts that young people have, then they'll stick around. Mm -hmm. So this is the conclusion. Apologetics is of the utmost importance. These three findings highlight the wisdom of the Apostle Peter when he commanded followers of Christ to, quote, be prepared to always give an answer, 1 Peter 3.15. The findings also make a strong case for the critical importance of apologetics for the church in the current generation. Doubts are everywhere, and almost all of us have them. And when not properly addressed, they can be spiritually disastrous. By contrast, faithfully answering questions and providing strong evidence for the truth of the Christian faith can have dramatic positive effects on the spiritual lives of others, especially our young people. Now, the part that just ate me up, (laughs) and that I wanted to just kind of bounce off of you— was this first part where he says, or they say, the Apostle Peter, when he commanded followers of Christ to be prepared to always give an answer. And so I wanted to dig into a little bit this whole idea that mm-hmm. Peter commanded. First of all, what does it mean for something to be commanded? Because I feel like mm-hmm. that word carries a lot of freight and potentially for me a lot of baggage, <laughs> which is if it's a command, that means you have to do it. And if you're not doing it, you're sinning, you're not following God. Uh, for the legalistic crowd, you know, you're not following the rules and you should. Mm-hmm. And it just caused me to wonder well, command, okay. What other commands are there? Well, there's the greatest commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the Ten Commandments. Like, those are the two that come to my mind. Mm-hmm. But, so, I don't know. I was, like, got curious. So, I went to First Peter 3.15. I read it a few times. I read it in the message. I read it in the ESV. I pulled out a commentary. And... Oh, what do I find out? This is, and this I think is what really torques me. <laughs> I read in this commentary that, oh, the, you know, First Peter was a letter from the Apostle Peter. They're fairly certain that it was Peter, um, right. fairly well established, unlike Hebrews, which we've talked about a little bit in the past. And so he's sending this letter to a group of people or churches that are being persecuted. Yes. Well, this article from the Biola magazine has nothing to do with persecution. <laughs> so, nope. we, so we take, like, this is just a, like one verse wonder. So we've got, it's like one sentence, it's like one part of one verse. 
to basically, it's like we sprinkle in this, we, they, sprinkle this verse in at the end of the article to, I don't know, like almost as a proof text, almost as a, to say, look, look, it's legit. Peter commanded followers of Jesus. So, or followers of Christ. So, obviously, anyone reading the Biola magazine is a follower of Christ. And if you're a follower of Christ, you got better follow those commands. And mm-hmm. so, I'm getting all worked up here, but <laughs> it just caused me to wonder, like, okay, let's take a big step back, John. What is a command? And 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 does that word, is that the right word to use in this article? And intentionally or not, is that word dragging in a lot more than it should be, mm-hmm. either for me or for other people? Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe I opened it seven topics there in that first question. Well, no, but all right. Can I, can I, can I just put the little stick in the water and stir up even more mud? Oh, no. Go ahead. So I, I, I wonder how much when you think about yourself and whatever. I, I remember this famous John Polster phrase, and I just wonder how much of this is an intellectual thing and how much of this is an experiential thing. When you would say. Christianity does not reconcile with my lived experience, with my life. And this guy is saying, listen, if we answer these intellectual things, everybody's good, because it's all about doubts. No, that, well, that was, yes, that's another huge problem I have with the article, and I wrote in the margin, I'm like, what about experience? Because, uh, because the article seems to basically say, hey, if we can answer all these intellectual doubts, we're set. We can, you know, we can stop all these young people from fleeing the church. Right. And I would say, well, uh-uh. not not in my experience. Well, what's the answer to God loves you? The Bible says so? Like, what's the intellectual, how, how, how do you offer a fulfilling intellectual answer to that type of question? I think that's, I'm wondering if that's, yeah. Well, that would, I guess that would be even more curious, would be to dig into a little bit more of this. So it looks like Craig Hazen is part of the, uh, Biola's program in apologetics, and then this other person, Larry Barnett, is the principal investigator with the Next Generation Project. So I, I mean, maybe it would have, maybe have to dig into like, well, what, what have they found, and you know, what, what intellectual arguments and apologetics, like, like what's what's their material, and how helpful is it? I'm right. guessing it would. <laughs> I have very low expectations that it would be even remotely helpful for me, based on my <laughs> own past. But you know, I I don't know if it was available, I'd read it. Well, oh no, <laughs> <laughs> I have right in front of me the ebook, the free ebook, "Saving the Next Generation: Why Millennials Are Leaving Christianity and How to Stop It," by Larry Barnett. Now, I find it interesting. He's he's citing, he's focusing on millennials because it seems like it's it's everybody. That's like uh, the flavor of today. I keep seeing all these business articles about millennials this and millennials that. Yeah. <laughs> like, I feel like more so than even like Generation X, which is, mm-hmm. well, I guess they used to talk a lot about the Xers, of which you and I are both part of. Yep. Yep. True enough. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think this is, this is these are great, these are great uh, topics because I, I think that this, this whole sort of intellectual focus, this apologetic uh, response, for me, I think I'm glad you've raised this and you've mentioned, you know, the the the, the command, equating it to a command, and then the whole thing about trying to somehow you're going to make everything better with words. You know, all I need is the right explanation. Right, we just didn't get it before. If we and, get it, if we're smart enough, or somebody else is smart enough, or somebody else bothers to give us information, rather than somebody else or some sort of situation unfolds in a way that shows these things to be true in real life, you know. And I think this is a really disconnected way of seeing not only the problem, but of seeing what the good is, what the value is, what who God is and how God seeks to interact with us. So, but I guess I want to go, so I guess for that, I'm totally fine saying, okay, there's some people out there that like, 
that's all they need. Right. And they're good. Totally cool. I just know for me, it's not. It hasn't been enough. It hasn't been enough yet. Or and I don't know how to say that. In other words, I need more. I need the experience part. That's the part I'm still looking for. So I don't know. I'm still, but I'm still want to like. I still like to cross off at least just in this session. This whole idea of a command. Mm-hmm. Where do commands come from? How do you define a command? What is a real command? And what is just a bogus proof text, which is how I read this command in this article. Yeah, well, I mean, the other things you mentioned when you said to yourself, okay, well, what is a command? Like, when, when the, 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 the lawyers, the, the religious elite come to Jesus and, and push Jesus about some of these things, Jesus is pretty clear, right? And these are the greatest commandments. Like, there are many sort of commandments, if you will, I, one of the realities, I guess, of, of, um, the opening up of God's kingdom to all people is that you now have this, this, this very, this, whatever you might, might want to call it the great commission or what have you, but there's this, uh, call to be able to, 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 to share this with everybody. Like the Israelites were not concerned to share all of this with other people, Aliens could be included, like foreigners and strangers could be included, but it wasn't their job to go do that. Their job was to be God's people. And so there's a different type of impetus that comes in the New Testament once Jesus, through his you know, death and resurrection, essentially opens up that blessing that we read about in the first three uh, verses of Genesis 12, when Abraham, because Abraham has been faithful in terms of coming, when God called, God makes a promise to Abraham, a promise that precedes the covenant, right? All the nations will be blessed through your seed. And um, I think the unqualified nature, the greatest commandment, the second greatest commandment, like they're not qualified in terms of time or space. They're simply qualified in terms of priority, right? And there's no better... There's no larger qualification than the greatest, right? The highest commandment, the, the most superlative thing, love God entirely. The next, love yourself and love your neighbor likewise. But this, this in First Peter, you're right, there's an entire um, context of persecution. Now, uh, could this apply? Could First Peter 3.15 apply in other contexts? Yeah, I think so. But should it be seen as a commandment in the same way that um, we're told to love God entirely, love our neighbors, love ourselves? I don't think so. Yeah, and as you're talking, I think what I'm realizing is, I think I just had too many years of church and too many years of of Christian messages and pronouncements where I was told, you know, God commands us— the mm-hmm. royal us or the royal we, the royal us, you know, God commands us to do this. God, And so I think, I think that just kind of triggers me naturally. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I kind of like, I like, yeah, I like the distinction. And yeah, I don't have a problem with, oh, okay, yeah, there's something that can be taken from this letter that Peter wrote that, you know, could be applicable in some ways, but to elevate it to a command just feels like you call it a command, and so it, it now carries more weight. Well, it can also be stripped out of its context, right? As a command, it has this kind of, I don't know, uh, shiny edges that make it stand out from the page. It's not just red letter, right? And I, I know it's not red letter per se. It's not as though Jesus said it. But it's got something more to it, right? And I think that there is also something... So that's the nature. If you think, if I, for me, I guess, as I reflect on this idea of the greatest commandment, the next greatest commandment, they don't need the type of context. Like they don't, they don't sit in a context. Their only context is what's the most important thing to do, and that most important thing to do never changes. Oh, that's fascinating. So it applies to any situation. Universal. It's universal. Wow. I yes. never thought of that. 
And I think they're trying to universalize this. And, you know, I'll be honest with you, John, when you ask me a question like that, my first response is I'm not qualified to answer you. That's just my honest answer because I'm not an exegete, right? Uh, I'm also not qualified because I don't have, I don't personally own a commentary on Peter's epistles. I should. Right. And after this conversation, I'm going to buy one. <laughs> How many books have I made you buy? <laughs> a lot. A lot. We won't, we won't tell my spouse about that. She, she kind of knows. Every anyways. time John has a question, Greg goes and buys a book. It's a good reason. <laughs> but I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm, I'm really starting to think about this. Could, could we just, would you mind if I read these verses out? No, read. Yeah, read. Yeah, read, read whatever you want. I'm, yeah, go for it. Okay, so so First Peter three. I'm just going to read a couple of. We can even still go back into First Peter two in First Peter two eighteen, talking to slaves. First Peter three one talking to wives. First Peter three seven. So we're kind of jumping at about seven verses each time. Verses 18, and then we go to... And it ends oh, where's 20. the section of verses about people doubting? We're, we're... <laughs> well, it's not there! <laughs> Gosh. But no, that's a fascinating thing, right? So, slaves, and then you've got eight, seven verses to slaves, and then you've got wives, you've got six verses to wives, you've got husbands, you've got a verse to husbands, but it also says, in the same way. So, there's some, some overlap here with husbands and wives. And then, this is the part I think is probably most helpful, from verse 8 onwards. Finally, and this is the next category, all of you. So we've dealt with slaves, we've dealt with wives, we've dealt with husbands. All of you have unity of spirit, sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or abuse for abuse, but on the contrary, repay with a blessing. It is for this, and I'm reading for the NRSV, it is for this that you were called, that you might inherit a blessing for, and this is verse 10, and this is a quotation, I'm not entirely sure from which Old Testament book this is from. For those who desire life and desire to see good days, let them keep their tongues from evil and their lips from speaking deceit. Oh my goodness. Let them turn away from evil and do good. Let them seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and the and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is turned against those who do evil. Okay, you got that whole thing there? Now, this is verse 13, now, who will harm you, even if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear, and do not be intimidated, but in your hearts, sanctify, or um, what's the other word? Uh, venerate, or more than that, um, uh, it's an R word and I'm missing it. It'll come to me. Sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous and the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The thing that struck me there was back at verse, when I said, oh my goodness, for those who desire life and desire to see good days, let them keep their tongues from evil and their lips from speaking deceit. Right? And it's, it's this whole thing, how you speak, how you act. And in the context of being persecuted, in the context of being persecuted, always be ready to make a defense for those who demand from you an accounting for the hope that is in you, right? Okay. And that's the whole thing, like, like I'll read 13 again. Now, who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be intimidated. But in your hearts, sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make a defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. So in other words, you're behaving, these Christians are being commanded to act in a way that is contrary to what would normally be expected. They're told, hey, you're, you're, you shouldn't get persecuted for doing what's right. But if, even if you do, even if you do, don't fear what they fear. Don't be intimidated. 
And, and and when Peter is saying that to them, when he's he's ad, I would I would hear this as like admonishment, encouragement, mm-hmm. um, hold the line, do what's right, versus yes. I command you, and because I'm the apostle Peter, and I'm commanding you, if you don't do it, you're sinning. Yeah, but this has nothing to do with doubting. I, well, yeah, that exactly. This has nothing to do with responding to doubts. This has everything to do with being a person living in the world who appears contradictory. No, but it's about, the whole key is it's about being ready to give an answer. That's the only part of the verse that matters. I know, but they're stripping it out of its context. And yeah, so, well, yeah, that's why I call it the one verse wonder. <laughs> I guess my response to you is no, I don't think this is a command at all. Okay. Okay. No more, no more than this is, a, that it's a command to... Um, do not repay evil for evil or abuse for abuse, but on the contrary, repay with a blessing. Is that a command? Well, maybe that's part of loving my neighbor, right? So maybe we could see offering, being ready to make your defense, but but it's but he's, he's putting it in a very specific context. So you mentioned suffering, and the book is clearly about suffering written to those who are being persecuted. And yet, I think what Peter's saying here, my take on this without referencing, you know, an expert uh, and a good commentary is you're going to get questions because when you act contrary to what people expect, they will ask you why. Be ready to tell them why. And this is almost, this cuts back, it seems to me, to that second question I asked you, which is, how do you feel when somebody says, listen, John, all you need is the right answers and it's all going to turn out okay for you? Versus you need, you're looking, something doesn't make sense in terms of something in your lived experience is not reconciling. Whether it's God's love, whether it's God being there, however that works out, right? There's an experiential component that people need to understand. And I think what strikes me as really ironic is that through this whole section from verse 8, when he, Peter the author is addressing, finally, all of you, all the way down and all the way through, I finished reading at verses, verse 19, it's all about how people, the Christians, will act differently. They're not answering questions. They're not giving information. They're giving their lives. They're living out their lives as living witnesses. And on that basis, they will appear contradictory. They will appear crazy. People will ask them, why are you doing this? Why do you act in this way? Oh, they're not giving their intellectual arguments. Precisely. <laughs> so, so, so this takes, so the, where I want to push this, and you actually touched on it a little bit too, which again, we're, well, have, there's a couple of things uh, that it popped in my mind that I do want to throw out there. It just kind of by way of disclaimers. So the fact that this article is in, a Biola publication, to me, I think part of my irritation here too is Biola holds itself up to be very academically rigorous. Hmm. And, you know, they grant doctorates and they are a higher school of learning. So it's not like I just found some random article in Reader's Digest and you and I are taking it apart. I would expect more. I would expect better. I would expect... Mm-hmm. I would expect something that you and I wouldn't just be able to like pull apart in 10 minutes. Yep. I mean, this is, this was almost easier than, than not a fan. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in some ways. So yeah. I guess where it made me want to go as I was reading Peter, and I know I've challenged you to this before and you haven't been up to the challenge, but I would still like, I still love the idea of taking a book of the Bible and working it all the way through on the podcast or yeah mm-hmm. i think ultimately on the podcast th- mm-hmm. that's one thought i had but the other thought is you know you mentioned hey you know you don't feel qualified to totally answer my questions cuz you're not an exegete well where does that leave everyone like there are very few exegetes so like right but how, i mean how can we get a how can we get a reasonable answer without Spending years in seminary and <laughs> trying to get as smart as N.T. Wright. <laughs> okay, well, the, on the one hand, that's fair, but I will always offer you the disclaimer. 
great. I I will do that. I don't that. need it from you. <laughs> no, but I, I think listeners do because you know the more like this 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 drives me crazy. This some of this stuff where um you know someone has a doctorate and so they're they're presented as though they're an expert. I mean the whole pardon me for here here let me let me let me this is this is a whole keg of worms it's more than a more than a can <laughs> um you know my my axe to grind against the whole uh, uh focus on the family uh the, the the truth project or to quote the sixth verse of harry potter the half truth project where you've got this <laughs> del tackett fellow who has a doctorate he does have a doctorate his doctorate is in um management or communication or something but completely removed from any of the subjects whatsoever that are touched on he is in no way in any sense an expert in any of that material but he's put across as though he is and that is extremely troubling right and so i am not going to try to play my uh like i've got a whatever master's degree in philosophical theology that's that's my that's my area of strength uh, which is, you know, biblical hermeneutics and philosophical hermeneutics. That's that's my stuff, right? So exegesis is pretty darn close to that, right? I've worked with exegesis. Exegesis has to be part of what I do. But I'm still going to say, you know, I'm not an expert. But I would say to come back to and re- respond directly to your question, it becomes very, very questionable to see the second part of 1 Peter 3.15, the second part of that verse, as a, quote, command that can be highlighted, put in glowing letters, essentially stripped out of its context and applied universally. You cannot do that. You simply cannot. You are doing damage to the text. Well, and I think, okay, thank you. Because I think I would, if I were to show this to some people, they'd say, oh, come on, John. I mean, it's just one word. They said command there. I mean command you know it, it it's you're just bringing your own baggage to this and i come back to it and say okay yeah i'm bringing some baggage but i also this to me just is intellectually dishonest this is as bad yes. as not a fan this is yes. this is the same stuff and it's like if that's the best you got like you must have a pretty crappy case mm-hmm. like if all you if if your sole support is half of one verse like that's all you got? Like, that's the best support you had for this one-page article? Yeah, and I, I, think, I think quite honestly, if, if they were approaching this in a more, with more integrity, I'll use that word. You don't have to use that. I, I, I think there's a real lack of integrity here. Um, and I'm also saying that looking and reading as we're talking the first couple pages of this ebook that I mentioned to you uh, what is it called again? Saving the next generation, right? And I think so. The, the whole the better way to go for me would be to look at um, is it Acts seventeen? Uh, Paul on Mars Hill. Now that's a much better situation, right? A much better way of engaging intellectually with people, and a much better example. And looking at Paul all through the book of Acts and what Paul is doing, right? Paul is. Three times he comes, we've got this, he, twice he comes back to his conversion narrative, right? This whole experience of meeting God is really, really important. Now, I'm not saying that if you don't have that, you can't open your mouth. That's not what I'm implying. But, but there's a lot of valuable information in how Paul conducts himself um, in, um, it's Acts 17, pardon me, is Mars Hill. Um, but the thing that I find very, very damaging, and, and, and the reason I'm talking about a lack of, of integrity, chapter one of this ebook uh, is entitled Doubts Are Devastating, Doubts Threaten Christian Faith. And my experience, um, I don't know how you would categorize yours, John, but my experience is that doubts are integral to faith. Doubts beget. They, they, they put us in a position that we have to respond to, but doubts in and of themselves are not bad things. I think they're good things. They're telling us that um, there's an issue with credibility. There's an issue with warrant or feasibility. There's an issue with um, application. Something's not working. If you have a doubt, 
It's you have a doubt for a reason. Yeah, but I think your doubts are different than his their doubts because, like, quoting from the article, this article in the Biola magazine, um, and again, I just read this and I was like, why is this news? Quote: Those with more doubts felt distant from God, prayed less frequently, and attended church less frequently. The impact of doubts fully accounted for the higher drift away rates among younger Americans, and doubt had a stronger impact on overall spiritual health than any. And doubt had a stronger impact on overall spiritual health than there's a word missing here than any other of the several hundred factors examined. Well, it would have been nice to like known like maybe some like five or six of the other factors, but like. I, I just read that I'm like, well, of course. Like, John, why don't you go to church? Well, I have doubts and nobody can help me with them. And I'm not getting any help at church, so I'm not going to church. Like, wow. So John goes to church less frequently because he has doubts. Like, <laughs> I don't, what am I missing here? Yeah. I, I, on the one hand, I don't think it's it's rocket science. But, but, but still, on the other hand, I think this whole idea of, of doubts as negative things. Yes, like, they yeah, they I think from what you read and then elsewhere in here it's it's that doubts are these like toxic cancerous things and so we need well, I think that's their point. We need apologetics to keep the cancer at bay. Yeah, because think, if if you get too much too much doubts, if they get too many doubts in them that they can't deal with, they're going to they're going to leave the church. Right, but the, the other way of framing this is that these people, everybody, is always hopefully right. If you're sane and you're moral, you are always engaged at at least one level, which is the level of your survival, in a t- quest for truth. Human beings are truth seeking. The notion that people are doubting Christianity is only one side of the coin. The other side is they're finding more truth elsewhere. And if you haven't figured that out, if you're not savvy to that, all you're going to do is try to persuade them that the things they think are wrong are actually right or aren't so bad or here's some answers. But I don't think this is the answer at all. I don't think we've properly understood what's going on. These are people who, unskilled as they may be at the whole process, and that's an issue, right? To be a truth seeker and not be very skilled at it, you're, you're going to have a harder time. Right. And that's not what we, I, I believe in that sense, I would go along with some of the spirit of what's being written here. But I think the idea that uh, I have a doubt, that's a bad thing. No, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. You've got insufficient information, or you are seeing a claim, and the truth value is not sufficient to warrant the truth claim. God loves me. Prove it. God exists. Prove it. Don't send me back to the Bible. I don't freaking believe in the Bible anymore. <laughs> right? It's like your Jehovah's Witness friends way long ago. Like oh, if yeah, the Bible yeah, is yeah. not a source of authority. Bring something else. Yeah. Bring something else, right? And that's that's I think I would go back to Acts. Yes, Paul is coming back to the scriptures in Acts all the time. And yet there's more going on. Right? There are some very definite acts, pardon the pun, of the Holy Spirit. And there are some things that are recorded and that can be passed on, and they are tangible. Now, I'm not suggesting that every church is going to begin raising people from the dead or something like that, right? No, healing people. But there are ways in which we substantiate. There, there, there are proper modes of truth value relative to the type of truth claim that is in question. So if I have a doubt about God loving me, um, are there some intellectual components to that answer? Yes. Are there some experiential components, whether in my life or via testimony through in the lives of others? I would say absolutely. Right? God's love is a promise. Yes, it's a promise. But there has to be some component of that promise which is made manifest in our lives. It doesn't have to be in mine could be in yours. Based on your credibility, our trust, our relationship, you tell me about that, that has purchase in my life, right? It has, I, I'm held accountable, in other words, for your experience, for believing something that seems to be credible enough, or for putting myself on the line 
to at least go to the point of having to validate it in order to believe it or not, not just outright letting it go or rejecting it. So this whole kind of approach to doubts is, is uh, it, it's, it's so uh, binary and black and white that, um, you know, are there cases where people lack information? I, I, I'm sure that there are, but there's a lot more going on. Even with the class that I'm teaching now with my, or trying to facilitate in the Sunday morning discussion groups on self-deceit, self-deceit's a huge one, right? How are you going to deal with rationality when you have the propensity to deceive yourself? Oh, well, crap. I'm kind of screwed, aren't I? Pardon, pardon my language, but we are. Well, maybe through even being aware of my propensity, I can begin to re-examine and reconsider some of the Bible's truth claims, knowing that it is a very early, I think, I don't know if there are earlier, if there are any earlier or any clearer sources uh, of information about human beings being the type of creatures that deceive themselves. So my very act of living in the world in some ways helps me corroborate some of the biblical truth claims, right? So I want to get back, though, to the biblical truth claims. Like, reading, so how would, I'm kind of changing the subject, but kind of going back to where we were. Yeah. How would a simple caveman like me Read First Peter. Like how how would I get what I'm supposed to get out of First Peter? Like what would I do? Honestly, that I I would take. So if you're looking to figure out a verse and it's the verse is just something seems funny to you about how somebody's using it, I would take ten verses before it and ten verses after it. Read it five times. Maybe read it over two days for those five times. Let it kind of sink in, right? Pretend that it's a painting and try to imagine what's being described as a canvas. And what happens for me, I mean, as I read this, the second part of 315, always be ready to make a defense, is, seems completely jarring, right? Because you have framed it, you've framed it as this author has framed it you've kind of you know we're, we're talking about it as a command right not not that's that that's your view but you're questioning that view and so thinking about it as that is completely uh dissonant with the rest of the verse rest of the like the the the, the, the text around it but then ask yourself the question what would this section have to mean if it wasn't dissonant if it actually flowed, if it made sense. Say that, I'm not sure I followed you there. Okay. So one of the things about proof texting or lifting verses out is it, we kind of, it has the effect of making them somehow be like highlighted in our Bibles. But this verse isn't highlighted. It's not highlighted. Oh, it's part of a wider flow. It's just, it's part of the current of the river. Yeah. No, I want to make a little proviso. You you could, like, uh, so a listener might say, oh, yes, but some of the biblical authors were incompetent and their writing was uh, jagged and uh, didn't flow. And that's particularly, uh, that that, that is very much an older criticism. By older, I mean sort of like 19th century uh, German scholarship, um, because mo- most of the good scholarship at that time was German, um, about the Old Testament and particularly the Pentateuch. So, so the, the, that's an actual kind of l- critical uh, scholarly uh, view. You might have that view, and I don't want to defend against that now. I just want to say, let's go with, let's assume that the author is sufficiently competent and is aiming to make sense and create good flow. Right, which is what you what you do when you're trying to communicate something to someone by writing. You want to make sense, have good flow. Things you know uh, aren't totally out of context or whatever. Um, you know, this isn't a grocery list of stuff that could be completely unrelated. It's uh, a letter to try to help folks and to try to be clear. 
So if you assume that the letter is trying to be clear, read that verse as though it completely fits in with the section, and then ask yourself, what would that verse have to mean, and what would the what would its relationship have to be with the, 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 the text around it for the whole thing to have good flow, make good sense, and be very readable for the people that are receiving it? And I think when you do that, all of a sudden, the verse takes on a different sense, right? It just cannot have that same sort of meaning to it. All of a sudden, you're thinking, well, yeah, I'm being ready to give a defense because even if I suffer for doing what's right, I'm blessed. And I'm not supposed to be afraid or intimidated, but in my heart, I'm supposed to be um, sanctifying or uh, um, venerating or, again, that's, that word's still escaping me, um, making God's name uh, holy, as it were. And in that context of me acting in that way, which is completely what people won't expect, what's going to happen? They're going to wonder. So when they wonder, I should always be ready to make a defense to those who demand an accounting for why I'm hopeful, because I shouldn't be hopeful. You've got nothing to be hopeful for. You're being uh, uh, persecuted. And in this case, you're being wrongly persecuted. There is no hope in this at all for you. Right and in an, in an honor and shame culture, this was a really, really, really bad thing, right? So the first century Palestine is an honor and shame culture. We've talked about this a little bit, bef- little bit uh, before. And, and if you read on there, just at the bottom of verse sixteen, yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear, so that when you are maligned, so you're treated wrongly, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. And this whole shame thing is they are going to lose face. They will ultimately be the ones within the social context who are wrong. But there's no reason for anyone as a Christian who is being persecuted in this way to be hopeful, to be joyful, to be not afraid, to be not intimidated in the eyes of those around them. And so, you know, what's happening here? Why is this person responding like this? That's how I read it, right? And I'd be interested to see what a, a good commentator would have to say on that verse and how it fits in. But I would always, always, always see the verses fitting in. And most times when we come to a situation like this, we have, just like you said, you've been conditioned, right? Really, here's the other way of seeing it. Well, condition, real quick though, conditioned in the sense that this is, quote, the apologetics verse. I mean, I've heard this for like, day one like you know in other words it's it's like i don't know i guess i just feel like these these sayings or notions they kind of get built up and they just kind of become assumed truth my hunch is my hunch is 99 percent of the people that read or skimmed this article were just like oh yeah there's the verse yeah uh uh-huh yep need to be ready to give a defense Uh uh-huh yeah oh yeah that fits with the projects interesting article what's next well, and, and they wouldn't have like read it like I read it because I'm like, well, wait a minute. I know, but I mean, the shocking reality there is, I'm sorry, but if this is the way you are reading that article and this is the way you understand that verse, your education isn't coming from the Bible, right? My sense of First Peter three, First Peter three is only here if you're reading the bo- the, the book uh, and the, this chapter with the sense that this verse is a command. It's like, uh, it's like when my kids go and they get a piece of toast and they get the jam. And this, the toast is pretty small. It's maybe just a small piece of toast. And, but the, the jam, <laughs> the jam is huge. The only reason the toast is there is because it's a carrier for the jam. And the only reason the rest of 1 Peter 3 is there because it's, it's a carrier for 1 Peter 3.15. <laughs> That is effectively what we are doing. We are abusing Mm. this Bible. We are abusing this text that we as Christians claim to love, value, and use as a rule of life. And we are abusing it when we fail to read it in its context and respect the context. And I think 
if people are able to just read through, skim through that article, say, yeah, 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 then they've been mistaught, they misunderstood, and there's a particular type of relationship they have with the Bible that I think they, would, they should change. And hopefully, you know, there's the possibility within our churches for that to happen. But I, I think it's scary to me that we are being taught. It's not, it's not that people come to church and they say, yeah, I've heard that verse, uh, first Peter 3.15 thing. And then all the people in church kind of do that kind of little nod and shake the head, nod the head and kind of, well, let's talk about that. It doesn't really, that we really want to read that in context. It's that that whole notion of decontextualizing and if you like commandifying or singling out one verse as the important part and the rest of the verses around it as simply the carrier for the person to get to the punchline, that's not the freaking punchline, right? We've misunderstood that section of Peter's, Peter's epistles if indeed we think that's the punchline, because it's not. No, I think that's beautiful, commandifying. I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, that was essentially not a fan. Like each chapter yeah. was a command on different things that you needed to be doing. That mm-hmm. were you were essentially commanded. The art of commandification. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, and I think this is so helpful because I, I can't remember. This ties to some conversation. And I can't remember what it was. I think you've complimented me on this before. But it, it's. I guess it's the idea that this conversation that you and I just had, or this question that I just raised around this article, mm. I don't know that I could have, I can't think of a place where I could have raised it. Like, I feel like an article like this gets a free pass as there's nothing here to question. And And if you, and if you're questioning it, you're just, you're just looking for something to pick apart. mm -hmm. There's, there's John and Greg on their podcast, just, you know, looking for something to pick apart. And it's like, it's like, no, this is bigger than that. Yeah, so we have doubts about the very nature of the solution that's being proposed by these people and the way that they have uh, uh, categorized the problem, right? Which is far bigger. And I think, I think too, that whole larger sort of meta doubt, if you like, or meta. Uh, oh, they've uh, defeated uh, their purpose. They've defeated their purpose. I have more doubts now. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And they can't, they're <laughs> unable to address any of this because the only way that they can, uh, it's if they're stripping out the verse to be able to mandate their actions, what does that say about how they probably understood the problem that they're trying to address? Right? They've used very questionable means to come up with their solution. How are the means that they've used to assess the problem? Right. My guess is they're not great. Right. No, and that's why I was suggesting earlier, like, this is the best support you had. Yeah. I mean, now, supposedly there's this research that they did, but I haven't read it. I don't have it. Do you have access to it? They mention it. So if you go to www.projectnextgen, G-E-N, all one word, dot org, and you look in uh, the uh, research, on the research tab, the third one down says methodology. And uh, there they they cite three um, three larger studies, and they say that they used regression analysis across three studies. <laughs> the problem for me is that th- th- this is all leading the witness. These guys of this this guy, I think he's the president and principal researcher. I think he's the president and the only researcher. <laughs> um, he's the only name. He's the only person. So they have the solution, and then they're looking for data to back into it. That's- yeah, it's yeah, it's just like it's just like the proof texting, but they're proof texting life too. That's my view. I mean, I haven't read it all through, but it just sounds so questionable. Like the whole orientation towards doubts. Doubts are devastating. Page seven of the ebook uh, subheading: Doubts threaten Christian faith. No doubts enliven Christian faith. Doubts, like the doubts you have, take churches that would essentially try to devalue the Bible and call them to task. Or, you know, ultimately, as we've found in a couple of cases, we get shut out. You know, I remember dealing with, interacting with uh, Everett Piper, and as soon as I was 
on his uh, Facebook page. And as soon as I posted something specific and said, I disagree with Dr. Piper and here's why and link the blog post to it, boom, I'm gone, right? So that happens too. You can get quite, you can get cut off. And I suppose that's, that's someone's right to have on their Facebook page who they want and who they don't want. It does seem a little sketchy when a Christian leader is being critiqued by another Christian to, instead of cutting, instead of responding, to simply, uh, you know, muzzle the person and throw them off. That seems a little, little sketchy to me. But So um, how should we wrap this up, or should we hmm. put a stake in the ground, something to come back to? What, what do, you, do you have any last thoughts? Well, it would be nice to come back and see about this whole, this doubts piece. I, th- I think you did a great job there. I think your 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 focus on the actual verse and then reading it and then pushing me and I as I'm look, looking at it, I'm thinking eh, something doesn't work here I shouldn't you know resist the idea of reading just reading it instead of saying oh I don't have a commentary <laughs> I'm not an exegete <laughs> yeah yeah but on that note we should we should link that in as well you did a blog post on so we got a question well, this. We, I promise we're wrapping soon. Um, someone had posted a really good question in the Facebook group about a commentary for a particular book, for a particular book of the Bible. Mm. You created a blog post that explained that that recommended, I guess, a number of different uh, commentaries and sources. And you mentioned exegesis and exegesis and exegetes. <laughs> and so I, I challenged you to define your terms, and you wrote another post on what that is. So. We should link to all that stuff, too, if people are curious or interested. That's a good idea. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Untangling Christianity podcast. A summary and resources for this episode are at our website, untanglingchristianity.com. If you'd like to join our private Facebook group or reach us by email, Send your requests, questions, or even a simple hello to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is provided by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license.